Well, Merry Christmas, a couple days late. Happy New Year, a couple days early. Um, it's good to be with you in God's house on this cold and gross and rainy morning. Um, this is always an interesting, odd week. It's not really Christmas anymore, but nobody's had the guts to take down their Christmas tree yet. And, you know, the refrigerator's full of leftovers, some of which are unidentifiable at this point. You know, all those things going on. And as I was thinking about what this, this week kind of means, it's a, it's a great time of reflection. And that's what I want to do this morning, spend a few minutes in, in reflection and a few minutes in challenge for the new year coming up. Um, as I thought back about, about Christmas, as I was growing up, um, Christmas always was, was one thing at my grandparents' house. My, my dad's parents always had the whole family over to their house for um, a special Christmas time. And uh, the thing I remember about that mostly was my grandmother, grandmother had every year a flocked Christmas tree, a concept I never really understood. You take a perfectly good tree that someone has gone out into the snow someplace and cut out of the woods, and you bring it home and you spray all kinds of white goo all over it, and you think that that's attractive. But that's my memory of, of what it was like for me as a kid at my grandparents' house. And as I think about that, I thought, you know, what I really want for my kids is to have, you know, better memories than that kind of thing. So we, we don't want them to, you know, grow up and someday be telling their kids about this tree that looked like somebody would sneezed real big all over it because that's just not a great Christmas memory. So we bring them here for Christmas Eve and we all, you know, make sure nobody catches on fire at the candlelight part of the service. And, and then we have great food and we have family around and, and we play board games. And one of the things that's become a Christmas tradition with us that we greatly enjoy is we have worn out a CD of Behold the Lamb uh, at our house this Christmas season. I'm not sure you can wear one out, but we're working on it real hard. And uh, we have enjoyed that here uh, at church as well and have brought friends, and it's just been a great time because the message in all of that is so phenomenal that since the beginning of time, God has put together a plan, a plan for the redemption of his people, and that that's spelled out all through Old Testament scripture and in the Christmas story, and that's really what it's about. It's about Jesus, our Savior, and not just about this baby and shepherds and wise men and stars. And my kids get it. They're old enough. And it's great. And we celebrate it together, and they know all the, song, all the words except for maybe some of the begat thing, because that gets a little weird in the middle. And if you have never been a part of that, I encourage you uh, in the future to you know, download it or listen to it or come and see when we, we're going again next year, aren't we, Evan? I don't know where Evan is. Thank you, Evan. Thank you. Um, but that's the kind of Christmas tradition I want my kids to know. That's what I want them to, to be about. But, but I I've felt cheated as I looked back at this Behold the Lamb story thing. Because it, it talks about, you know, from, from Old Testament, from back to the time of Moses, about the characters that, that foretold the coming of Christ and, and talks about all the different people of Mary and Joseph and, and all that in the story. And that's all great, um, but there's one guy that didn't make the list. He doesn't make the list in the story, but he makes the list in the title. So I'll let you think about that for a minute when I tell you about some of the other lists that we see this time of year. This is the time of year that every magazine and every news show that doesn't have anything to cover, you know, starts talking about lists from 2014, right? 
So I went made a quick look. The Forbes uh, richest Americans list. Think about who might be on there. I'll, gi- I'll give it to you real quick. Bill Gates and Larry Ellison are on there. So that's Microsoft and Oracle, two computer guys. Warren Buffett, the Oracle of Omaha, the great investor, the guy that can take, you know, 50 cents and turn it into billions of dollars. The Koch brothers, who nobody really knew what they did to make all their money, but now they live to drive Democrats nuts, if you watch any news. There are four members of Sam Walton's family that are on the 10 richest Americans list. That's Walmart. And then Mark Zuckerberg, creator of Facebook. The man that has given us more dog pictures and who ate a pickle messages than any other man ever alive. Somehow is one of the 10 richest Americans out there. And he's like nine years old, something like that now. So that's a decent list. Time Magazine does a list, or does a thing every year, too, where they they point out the man of the year, or the person of the year, or the people of the year, or the thing of the year, or something. This year it was Ebola fighters. The people that went to West Africa to fight the Ebola virus. And, you know, God bless those folks that have those skills and, and that have the heart to go and help other people who are in desperate need. So that was a great choice. And I look back over the list of the people that have been the Times Person of the Year. There have been 21 U.S. presidents that have been Times Person of the Year. Or I should say, 21 U.S. presidents have been Person of the Year. Or 21 times a U.S. president has been Person of the Year. Some of them have repeated, like FDR was like nine times or something like that. There's been eight Russian leaders. The very first Person of the Year was Charles Lindbergh. 1927. Charles Lindbergh had been a war hero. He was the first person to to fly across solo the Atlantic Ocean. He was a hero in the United States. He was a hero, hero in France where he landed. And it was said in the article about Time's very first person of the year that Charles Lindbergh could be anything he wanted to be in the United States. His popularity was so great. He could be a a senator from any state, a congressman from any state. And if he'd wanted to be the president of the United States, he would have been a shoo-in. That makes him a pretty popular guy. Oh, in 2010, Mark Zuckerberg was man of the year. So now we know what everybody had for lunch and what people do at Walmart after midnight. Facebook guy. So these are all great lists, and it's all wonderful and stuff, but but there's even people you've never thought of that make great lists. And one of my favorite lists every year is, is one that is uh, the Carnegie Heroes. Has anybody ever heard of the Carnegie Heroes before? Didn't think so. Carnegie Heroes, this year there were 30 of them. And the Carnegie Heroes are common, everyday people, most of them firefighters and policemen, who have gone into burning buildings and saved people who have laid their lives on the li- or put their lives on the line to save other people in dangerous situations. And the Carnegie Foundation gives a couple thousand dollars to each one of the Carnegie heroes that they choose every year as a special reward for these people who are, who are brave and who put their lives on the line for others. The Carnegie, Carnegie Foundation. It's named for its founder, Andrew Carnegie, who back a little better than 100 years ago started U.S. Steel made in his lifetime somewhere in the neighborhood in today's uh, money of half a trillion dollars and has given away and gave away over 90% of everything that he made. 
He established several foundations, and one of them was this this Carnegie Heroes Foundation that, that rewards people who, just everyday folks, who step out for others, for their neighbors. At his time, Andrew Carnegie was the most powerful man in the world. The amount of commerce and money that he controlled at the height of his U.S. steel days when when railroads and buildings and things were taking off in the United States was immense. He controlled over a third of the U.S. dollars in his corporations. And the U.S. was by far the largest and most vibrant economy at the time. So he was probably the most powerful man in the world. He was a decent guy in as much as he gave away 90% of everything that he made, but the way he got it was not always necessarily the most scrupulous. He was a an an incredible businessman who didn't really care who he ran over to get there. And he was sort of the epitome of what, what the world considers someone who achieves greatness. He had phenomenal wealth. He had phenomenal power. He was famous everywhere he went in the United States and in his native Scotland and throughout the British Isles as this incredible philanthropist. He had more accomplishment than most people would ever dream of in their whole lives. And that was what the world thought was greatness. Now, he turned around and did much with his wealth. And he's, he's uh, still blessing people today. He built more libraries than anybody else in the United States. He gave money towards libraries. He's a great guy. But it's not biblical greatness. You see, biblical greatness is different than worldly greatness. You know, sometimes... Biblical greatness is accompanied by great power or great wealth or great accomplishment or great fame. I think of of Solomon, the king of Israel, who was incredibly wealthy in his day. He had incredible wisdom. He had some of those things. But his greatness was not a result of those things. Those things came as a result of his biblical greatness. So I want to pause for a few minutes this morning and look at what makes someone in the Bible great and then give us four points to challenge us for the coming year of how we can be great like this character in the Bible. So I said one of the characters I think that gets left out of of Behold the Lamb is, is one of my favorite characters of Christmas, and that's John the Baptist. After all, John the Baptist, while he's still in his mother's womb, he's still in Elizabeth's womb, and Elizabeth's cousin Mary comes to visit her, and he recognizes right away that she is pregnant with the Son of God while he is still in the womb. That's some pretty good perception for a baby that's not even made it into this world yet. And John the Baptist is a phenomenal character. Matthew chapter 11 Verse 11, and guys, I skipped over a couple of verses, so it's the third one back there for you, Greg. John 11, or Matthew 11, 11 says this. Matthew 11, 11, there it is. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. These are the words of Jesus right here. So get this picture. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, of everybody that's ever been born of a woman, there's never been anybody greater than John the Baptist. That's some pretty special company. So this is a guy I think we need to look at. Now, he said this to his disciples, and his disciples, they were always into this greatness thing. 
Let me back up a little bit. Let me go back or, or take you to another story here. In Mark chapter 9, verses 33 and 34, we read this. And they, that's Jesus and his disciples, came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, Jesus asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had been arguing with one another about who is the greatest. Get this picture. The disciples and Jesus are walking down the road. This is near the end of Jesus' life. And as they're getting down towards the the town that they're going to, they're arguing about which one of them is the most special, which one is the greatest of all of them. They're walking with Jesus. And they're arguing amongst themselves about greatness. They weren't always the sharpest tacks in the box. But a couple of them came by this rather naturally. Because if we go to Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 and 21, we read this. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that would be the disciples James and John, came up to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say to these two sons of mine are to sit on one on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. So this, this whole thing of greatness, get this. You know, we, we want to be great ourselves, I think most of us. Our parents all have dreams of us growing up to, to achieve great things and, and to, to be great people. That's the, my dream for my kids. I want them all to grow up and, and greatly surpass anything I ever dreamed of doing in my life and be better people and be more godly and be more successful than I ever dreamed of being. And it's not bad that the mom of these two guys is, is, is asking Jesus to bestow greatness on them, but that's not what Jesus was about. Instead, Jesus pointed at John the Baptist and said, this guy over here, he's the one that was great. So turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 1. And we're going to begin reading at verse 19. It'll be up on the screen here, I believe. John chapter 1, verse 19. is going to talk about John the Baptist. And I got my pages out of number here. Okay. And as we read through this passage and a couple more, I want you to think about four things that made John great. I'll give them to you now, and then we'll talk about them one at a time. First of all, John was humble. Secondly, John was simple. Thirdly, John was bold. And fourth, John was someone whose whole life was about pointing other people to Jesus. So he was humble, simple, bold, and lived to point other people towards Jesus. And if we can get to that point, I think that we will have greatness as well. So let's look at a couple examples of how this played out in John's life. John chapter 1, verse 19. And it says this. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you a prophet? And he answered, no. Now, get this. John, when we think of John, does anybody think of John as somebody, you know, very special and classy and everything that that people would come to and, and, and want to say that he's the Messiah, he's a prophet, all those other things. One of the things we know about John is, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute, is that he, he dressed in funny clothes and he ate weird food, right? 
He dressed in camel hair and leather belt, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And I guess that made his breath sweet, but outside of that, you know, there wasn't much about that. Lived down by the river. In a van, eating government cheese. That's not right. But John was this guy, and the, the people, the, the leaders, the religious leaders of that day come to him, and they say, you know, are you the Messiah? There was something special that, that attracted people to John. And he said, no, I'm not the Messiah, and I'm not Elijah. He's been dead for a long time. I'm not the prophet. I'm none of those things. Pick up at verse 22. And he said, they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who have sent us. What do you say about yourself? If I said, what do you say about yourself, what would your answer be today? Let's look at what John's answer was. He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, and now they had uh, been sent from the Pharisees, they asked him, then why are you uh, baptizing? If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the, uh, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So John says, here's, the, here's what it is, guys. I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy, but I know something that very few other people seem to know around here. I know that the Messiah is here, and I know that I am going to point you towards him. So John did everything in his power to attract people to himself, not so that he could be special, but so that he could point people towards Jesus Christ. And he said, you know what, compared to him, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He has it all together. I got nothing. John was a humble man. So as I, I encourage us all to look at the new year, you know, is that what marks us, or are we out to promote ourselves? John's deal was not self-promotion. His deal was Jesus' promotion. Even when people came to him and tried to make him into something special, he said, that's not me. I'm not about me. I'm about Jesus. And I want to tell you about him. I'm going to proclaim him to you. I'm going to say, behold the Lamb of God. That's what I'm here about. But along with being humble, John was simple. He was a simple guy. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. We'll read verses 4 and 5. And this is what I alluded to a minute ago. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. That's not a special guy. He's camping his whole life. And everybody knows Camping's nice for about an hour, and then it gets old, and then it gets wet, and then it gets... Yeah. But that's John. He's a simple guy. But verse 5 is really good. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all of the region about the Jordan were going out to him. John was humble. John was simple. But because of who John was, it says, all of the region, all of Jerusalem, all of Judea, was doing what? They were coming to him. See, as, as people, we don't have to promote ourselves. If we're doing this right, people are going to come to us because we have something that they know that they need. That makes us special. 
Not that you are so brilliant, not that you are so skilled, not that you are so talented, but if you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have something that a lot of people don't have. And if we can keep pointing people to Jesus, God is going to bring people to us that we can have an impact on. One of the neat things that we do here at church every year is we have an Awana program that runs through the school year. And every year there's a couple new leaders that come and be a part of the Awana program, and they say, I'm not sure what skills or gifts I have to do this whole thing. And I say, can you smile? Well, yeah. Can you, like, pat a kid on the back and say, good job, you learned that verse, you did it really well today, you said it, and, you know, you memorized it and hidden it in your heart, and that's a good thing? Yeah, I can do that. I said, you're skilled. You can do this. And the neat thing is to see people that get involved with the Iwana program, which is working with kids and helping them memorize Scripture and helping them understand Scripture, and as they go through all this, see them learn that what they are doing in helping kids hide God's Word in their hearts is going to change the lives of those kids. And it impacts those kids forever. Some of you sitting out here did Awana here 20 years ago and see the kids now that have grown up and are on the mission field and stuff like that, and that's cool. And you've had a part in their lives. But you don't have to have the special personality and all these special skills to do this. You need to point people towards Jesus. And God will bring people to you to do that. Jerusalem, Judea, and all of the region around the Jordan were going out to John. Because they found something special in him. He was simple. He was humble. But John was bold. It's interesting. People came to John down by the river and listened to him speak and listened to him preach and listened to him challenge them to change their lives. But John also went someplace else. Look at Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 17 with me. It says this, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is unlawful, or it is not lawful, for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. It's a goofy story. Herod, a Jewish king, had a brother... Philip, and Herod had his eye on Philip's wife, Herodias. And he just took her as his wife. Philip didn't die. She wasn't a widow. He just took her as his wife and took her into the palace, and she lived with him. So get this. John goes to the king, and he says, you're doing this wrong. It's not okay for you to have your your brother's wife. And Herod, being a king, says, eh, I don't care about you. But the wife, she gets bent out of shape about this. And she wants his head. But the story goes that John continued to go and continued to say the same thing to Herod and to Herodias. He kept going and telling them that what they were doing was wrong. He was bold enough to stand up to the very king. This is a guy that lives in a tent down by the river and eats locusts but goes to the palace of the king and says, you're doing something wrong. You need to repent. You need to get her out of the palace, and you need to turn back to God. It's interesting, verse 20 of Mark 6. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and Herod kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, 
and yet he heard him gladly. So get this picture. John goes to the palace, talks to the king, and says, what you're doing is wrong. And the king listens to him because he knows that John is a good and righteous man, righteous and holy. And he doesn't like what he's saying to him, but he's willing to listen. Not only is he willing to listen, it says he heard him gladly. And so many times, we're not bold in what we say to people. We're not bold in the way we approach people because we think, you know, if I say the wrong thing, then they're not going to like me anymore or they're going to stop listening. You know, if I confront sin for what it is, if I tell my kids that what they're doing is wrong, you know, they may not text me anymore or whatever it is, we shrink back. And John is a great example of if we go out boldly and we tell people the truth, not to tear them down, but to get them to be the kind of people that God wants them to be, then that's where greatness comes from. It says, he didn't like what, the the king didn't like what John was saying to him, but he heard him gladly. He listened to him. He didn't like the message, but he couldn't argue with the messenger. So I think if we, are, if we are humble, if we are simple, and if we are bold in what the God's Word says, we will have that same opportunity with people. So I would challenge us in the new year, and myself included in this, is, is when people come across our path that we know the Word that can help them, that can change them, that we know the Word that will challenge them. Don't shrink back from it. Be bold. But along with that, Make sure that you're being righteous and holy, and that's as much in your attitude as anything else. We're not out to get people. We're not out to fight with people. We're out to fight for people. And that's what John did. So John was humble. John was simple. John was bold. And John pointed people towards Jesus. Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 1, verse 29 says this. The next day, he, that being John, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John is pointing Jesus out to his disciples. And he's saying, this is the guy I was talking about. Remember the guy with the sandals? I'm not worried that I untie his sandals. You know, he is the guy that everybody thinks I am. I'm not him. This is him. That's John. John's whole deal was pointing people towards Jesus. Skip down a few verses. John chapter 1, verse 35 says, And the next day, again, John was standing with his two disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they turned and followed Jesus. John had a good following of people. There were people that came down from the whole region, from Jerusalem, from Judea, to hear him at the Jordan River every day. And John could have been a great man in the world's eyes. He could have had this whole following with him, and he could have turned it into his own little church and his own little deal, and it would have been probably not little, but pretty good size. But John's whole point was pointing towards people towards Jesus and saying, Behold the Lamb of God. This is who I've been telling you about. This is Jesus. 
And his message wasn't, you know, this is Jesus, let's go back and let's look at all the prophecies about him and let me show you how he fulfills all this prophecy. That's not what he said. This is Jesus, he's going to take away the sin of the world. That's a pretty good job right there, taking away the sin of the world. And all the other stuff is sort of just, you know, filler along the line. So as John looks at this guy, Jesus, and he says, this is him who I've been telling you about, his followers turn and follow Jesus. And as someone in ministry, as someone who's seen a lot of people in ministry, that's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to say, you know, I want to to tell all you people about someone else, and instead of listening to me, go listen to them instead. We find that hard in our own lives. You know, we like people to listen to us. We like people to appreciate us. We like people to look at us and think, you know, that in whatever area it is, whether it's ministry or business or oil and gas or, you know, whatever it is, or you know, um, that we know something and that people appreciate what we know and what we can do. John knew a lot. He could do a lot, obviously. He had a good following. But he said, stop looking at me. Look at him. And I think for all of us, when we can look to the people that respect us and say, stop respecting me, look at Jesus. That's when we're on the road to greatness. About 25 years ago, my wife and I went into full-time ministry. And I stole an idea from a guy that had been one of my mentors into ministry. His name's Doug Schillinger. He pastors a church up in Iowa, which, you know, doesn't sound like much, but it's a good church in Iowa. That's for all you people that know Iowa. You know what Iowa means? It's an acronym. I owe the world an apology. So, (laughs) But Doug is a great man of God, one of the greatest disciplers I've ever known. And Doug told me one time when he went into ministry that he had a prayer that he prayed every single Sunday morning before he went and spoke to anybody. And that prayer was, God, in my life I want you to raise up at least five people who will go on to do greater things than I ever imagined and dreamed of doing. And I will tell you this, Doug has had a bunch of people come behind him that have done incredible things all over the world. And when I went into ministry about 25 years ago, I started praying the same prayer. And it has been very cool to see the people that God has raised up into whose lives we have had just a tiny little piece. But what I will say is that one of the things I'm most proud of in the last 25 years of my life is that the peace that most people have gotten from me is that I pointed them towards Jesus. I want my kids to grow up to be successful. I want my kids to grow up to be wealthy and take care of me in my old age. That'd be nice. Just one of them, that's all. I want my kids to grow up to be great people. But I want my kids to know Jesus. And one of the greatest blessings in my life is that I've had a chance with all four of my children to sit and pray with them as they've accepted Jesus as their Savior. And I've been able to point my kids and other kids and other teenagers and other adults towards Jesus and say, behold the Lamb of God. He's the one that takes away sin of the world and can take away your sin. 
And all my life I've been proud, and I haven't been bold, and I haven't been humble, and I've overcomplicated things so many of the times. And as I read over the story of John the Baptist, I think, you know, how much more could God have done with me over the last 25 years if I just would have gotten out of the way and been simpler and humbler and more bold and done more to point people towards Jesus. So my challenge for each one of us in the coming year is just exactly that. What is it that you're holding on to that you think is so special about you? Get rid of it. It's not that important. What is it that that you overcomplicate about this whole thing? People are sinners. God is perfect. That causes a problem. Jesus came to redeem sinful people. And all we need to do is ask him, and he will pay the price for our sins, and we can have a restored relationship with God. That's simple. God has placed you in the path of many people. Are you pointing them towards Jesus? I want to circle back to one of the stories I started with out of God's Word this morning. Go with me back again to Mark chapter 9. We're going to pick up this story at verse 35. It says this, And he sat down, that's Jesus, he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If any would first serve, he must be last and serve a servant of all. And he took a child and put him in in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. As I thought about that, I just couldn't get that piece of that scripture out of my mind. At first I thought, that doesn't really fit with anything that I'm talking about here with John the Baptist and stuff. But then I thought, you know, the people that understand this best, this whole thing of being simple and bold and humble, are kids. So it wasn't, it wasn't you know, odd that Jesus chose a child to be his object lesson. I picture him picking up these kids and putting one on each knee as he's sitting down in front of the disciples. And he says, guys, look, this is what I'm talking about. This is what you need to be like. And I think if if we could get into that mindset for just a second, kids are simple. Teenagers, not so much. Kids are simple. Kids understand that they sin. And that sin causes trouble for them. And... Sooner or later, they understand that most of the time they can't fix it. That what they really need is forgiveness. See, so when Jesus has kids in his lap, he, it's a pretty good object lesson. Kids understand the simplicity of, of the relationship between God and men. Also, kids are humble. Kids understand that they don't have all the answers. You know how I know that? Teach a kid something. Teach a kid something they don't know. What's the first thing they want to do? Go tell somebody else. They know they don't know everything, and they love to learn stuff. Whether it's how to whittle or... I was going to say how to do math. No kid wants to learn how to do math. Anyway. You teach a kid a new skill... (laughs) Sorry, Bonnie, that's not true. Math teacher right up front. That was all bad. Um, you teach a kid how to do a new skill. You teach a kid how to do, you know, learn a new song. I love the kids that, that come to the, the preschool that happens here and, and seeing them as they come out. and they, I learned how to read. Let me read something for you. Cat. You know, 
Good, you've read that. You know, bat, good. You know, how about a four-letter word? Read, that's a good one. You know, and kids are so excited to share with you what they know. It's, it, it's, sim- it's simple, and they're humble, and, and they, they want you to know what they know. And kids are bold. One of my favorite things is when, when you see a kid who comes to know Jesus as their Savior. Much like when they learn how to read or learn some other life skill, the first thing they want to do, you, you find a kid that comes to know Jesus as their personal Savior, and they really understand what that's about they got a whole list of all the people they need to go share that with. There's no hesitation in it at all. You find a kid that comes to know Jesus as their Savior, and they are one of the greatest evangelists until we screw them up that, the God, that God has ever seen. They want everyone, their siblings, their parents, their grandparents, their neighbors, the dog, they want everybody to understand this whole thing that they have understood. And it's more than just, I learned how to read, let me read you three words. It's, I understand that this is life-changing. Kids get that. And somehow we overcomplicate things and we get to the point that, that it becomes, you know, well, once you get the right training and all this, then you can do something with this. Kids don't go there. Kids get it. They want to share it. And they're really good at pointing people towards Jesus. Kids understand the difference between God and them, between sinful and forgiven. And they want to share it with everybody they can. And they also understand it's not because they're so special, but it's because Jesus is. And they're really good at pointing people towards Jesus. So I would say to you today, going into the new year, can we all commit together to try and be more childlike with our faith? Can we all shoot for the greatness of John? Where we are humble and simple and bold and we live to point people towards Jesus because if we do God says those are some of the pieces that make us great my prayer for each one of us is that we'll be great in the new year let's close in prayer Heavenly Father I thank you for the the simplicity of your word I thank you Lord God that that in your word we find truth and it's easy to understand. That we can come as a child and we can understand even as a child, Lord. And I pray for each one of us in the coming year, Lord, in our relationship with you, that we would not overcomplicate it, not let theology or church or anything else get in the way of our relationship with you, but that we would grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men so we can point people towards you. Father God, help us to be men and women and children of God that live to share Jesus Christ with those that you have put in our path. And Lord, help us to celebrate when you do miraculous works in others and we get to be along for the ride. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.